0: Well, let's look at the Parsha together first. Uh, if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 30. Uh, this, this Parsha can turn, contains my, uh, my favorite Bible verse. It's in uh, Numbers chapter 32. Ah, there we go. Numbers chapter 32, verse 3. Who wants to read that for me? Numbers 32, verse 3. Good job. Thank you, Charlotte. Give her a round of applause for reading that. All right. When, when, I, when I was a teenager, I kind of had a joke. I like to tell people that my favorite Bible verse was 1 Chronicles one twenty five, which says, It's just part of that genealogy. And it was kind of a joke back then. But, uh, you know, actually, this, uh, this verse, Numbers 32, verse 3, has theological significance that I want to point out to you on a more practical level. In, in the Jewish tradition, uh, it's believed, uh, the, the concept of Torah Mishamayim, is believed. You know what the Torah is. Do you know what Shemaim is? Shemaim or the heavens. All right. So, like our Father in heaven, for instance, is, is Avinu, our Father, Sheba Shemaim, who is in the heavens. So, Torah Me, which is uh, means from Shemaim, means Torah from heaven. And uh, that, is the, that is the Hebrew term for the concept of the infallibility of the Word of God. Um, in in um, Christian theological terms, we call that the infallibility of the Word of God, or a divine inspiration. All right? So the Jewish people believe, Orthodox Jews believe in Torah Mishamayim, Torah from Heaven. So th- in the Jewish understanding, every verse of the Torah is there for a reason. Every verse of the Torah is significant. Everything in the Torah is relevant, even if at first glance it doesn't seem very relevant. In fact, I'll take this a a, a step further, and I could really go into detail with this this morning. I'm not going to, but uh, in the Jewish worldview, God actually used the Torah to create the universe. God used the Torah as His blueprint, as His very word, through which He generated the cosmos. So, in, in, in the Orthodox Jewish, uh, what would you call that? nomology like theology of the Torah, God used the Torah and the very letters of the Torah and every verse to generate everything in existence. All right? And this, this is an ancient, ancient Jewish tenet. It's been around for thousands of years. In fact, it was around in the days of the apostles. Now, let me ask you is the Torah the word of God? Yes. Yes. And is God's word his Torah, his teaching? Yeah, you could say they're, they're, they're generally synonymous terms, although they have different nuances. So let's, uh, let's look at the writings of Yeshua's emissary, Yohanan, the, uh, the Apostle John, in the first chapter of his Gospel, where he says, in the beginning was what? The Word. The word. Okay, now let's replace that with Torah, just to try and understand the Jewish mindset. Alright? In the beginning was the Torah... And the Torah was with God, and the Torah was God. Through Him, that is to say the Torah, everything was made. And without Him, nothing was made that's been made. And then you toggle on to verse 14, and it says, And the Torah became flesh. And He, he, he shikhaned, like He made his, his tabernacle, His dwelling among us. Right? Can you, can you see that there? as Messianic believers we actually believe that Orthodox Jewish doctrine but we know who the Torah is we, we know who the Torah of God incarnate is his name is Yeshua he, he was like the, a Torah scroll with skin on he was the living, breathing human Torah scroll and you know what? When we begin to understand Yeshua in that context, it will enable us to communicate the essence of Messiah to the Jewish world much more accurately and in a much more relevant way. Because often Jesus is portrayed as this Gentile—I don't know hippie dude or a surfer dude, maybe. I don't know who like—I don't know—was pretty ambivalent towards Israel at best. Maybe is out to get Jewish people and Gentilize them. But you know, when we begin to like, really delve into the Gospels and understand them in their Jewish context, it makes Yeshua come alive in a new way. And it will give us as the body of Christ that edge to represent Yeshua to the Jewish people, of whom Paul said that the Gospel is first for the Jew. So our priority in preaching the Gospel is for the Jew. So anyway, that's a little, that's a little peek into, that, into this concept. Now, that whole concept, to kind of bring it to bear, is summed up in this verse. In the, in, uh, you know how in the Jewish world, if you want to quote a verse, they didn't have chapter and verse numbers back then, right? Those were in, only introduced, uh, the v- chapters were introduced in the 1200s, verses were introduced in the 1600s. So, in Yeshua's time, if you wanted to reference a verse, you would actually just, uh, you would just quote the first couple keywords of the passage. So, for instance, this portion is called Matot, tribes, because that's one of the first words in the portion. Alright? This verse is just called Atarot and Dibon. Atarot and Dibon, in Hebrew. And and, um, it has this concept of This verse seems totally irrelevant. And this verse is irrelevant to me, so I'm just going to skip this chapter as I'm reading through the Bible. But you know, what, what, what this concept of the Torah from heaven means is like, it's not so much about asking, how is the Bible relevant to my life? It's more about asking, how can I make my life relevant to the Bible? And this is actually something that really hit me a couple of weeks ago. I shared it on Facebook and it really resonated with a lot of people too. But, you know, I, 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 was in, I was in prayer one morning and I realized that I'm usually about trying to get God to come to me. I want God's presence to come to me. I want to feel His closeness. I, you know, and I, I just felt Him very clearly that morning. I don't know if it was an invitation or a challenge or both, but to say, why don't you focus on being present to me today? I usually think about getting Him to be present to me. His presence, Right? And I just felt like I'm saying, I want your presence. I want you to be present to me today. And I, 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 that really did it for me. And that's the concept. Just like we focus on being present to our Creator throughout the events of a day, conversations, our work lives, etc., we can focus on making our lives relevant to His Word. And uh, you know what? For some of these chapters, it's, that's a challenge. You've got to think about it. And uh, maybe that would be an example. Here's a little tip that I would give you for that. If you don't see yourself as being an extension of the people of Israel, if you don't see yourself as being part of the the broader commonwealth of Israel, if you don't see yourself as being grafted in, as you see yourself as like 100% Gentile and totally separate from the Jewish people, these chapters are going to be a little boring. They will feel a little irrelevant at times. But if you see yourself as part of the family if you see yourself as an extension of national Israel through Messiah, through your faith in Messiah, and you know, there's, there's, solid, there's a solid base for this in, in, in Paul's letters, then all of a sudden, this is your book. These are your chapters. This is all about your history. So all of a sudden, it's not just about those bunch of people way back when that did whatever. This is about your land. This is about your national history. And you know what? You have to understand where you've come from to understand where you're going. Uh, in, in Western society, we're so individualistic, eh? You know, it's, it's easy to just think about the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. And that's how we look at the world, and that's how we relate. But uh, if we really get into the Word, and we begin to understand the kingdom that we're a part of, we're going to start thinking more in terms of us and we, and that's where these chapters begin to come to life. Because we realize we're part of a nation. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves as individuals or as little family units. And we've come from somewhere as a nation and we're going somewhere. So anyway, that's why I really like Numbers chapter 32 verse 3. Ata the dibon. So uh, remember that little key phrase next time you're like, this is really boring and I don't have a clue how it relates to my life. <laughs> just, uh, just flash back in your mind to, uh, to our, little, our little discussion here. Alright, this, this is something I've really wrestled with. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, Numbers chapter 30, the first chapter in this parasha, in uh, verse 16, it says this, These are the laws which Yahweh commanded Moses as between a man and his wife and as between a father and his daughter while she's in her youth in her father's house. Alright? And uh, we'll, look at, we'll look into the details of this chapter. But, you know, I, I'm a relatively young husband. I, we've been married for almost four years now. And so, you know, I'm in that process where I really want to learn more about being the best husband I can be and treating my wife right and all of those things. So, you know, I ask people about it who have been married for a long time and I, I watch them and secretly take notes on all of you husbands about how you treat your wife so I can copy you. And, uh, you know, I get books on the subject and whatever because I want to learn. And, you know, one of my big questions is being, God, like, what do you have to say in your Word about how to be a husband. I want to learn about this thing. And so, you know, I come across a verse like this and it's like, oh, look, these are the laws that God gave for a husband and his wife. This is going to be rich. And then I read it and it's like, this doesn't feel very rich. It's like God took a whole chapter in the Torah to say that if my wife makes a vow, I'm allowed to cancel it if I want to. Great. You know, that really doesn't teach me... This is my first reaction, okay? That really doesn't teach me much about how to work through this crisis, or, or how to... Uh, male-female communication, or any one of these things that can be real real challenges in a marriage, eh? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 30, and we're going to try and break it down and see if there's anything really relevant in this chapter. Uh, this is an example of, like, how God doesn't just spoon-feed like spoon us. I almost sped spoon-feed how would you say it spoon feed spin food yeah anyway he doesn't do that to us with pablum like the torah is it's it's heavy stuff you know you can't just like swallow it whole or you're going to get a big chunk stuck in your throat like you got to chew the stuff up and and ingest it eh so we're going to chew up some torah and we're going to ingest some torah this morning so it doesn't get stuck in our in our metaphorical throats um Let's, uh, okay, we have to work on a, on a basis here, okay? I want to ensure we're on a common, on the common ground. Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5 that we shouldn't even think something. He said we shouldn't even think that He came to abolish the Torah. Alright? I assume that means that as a, as a default, after, right after His crucifixion, the Torah wasn't abolished also. I think we could assume that. Otherwise, you know, we would read Him saying, Don't think that I came to abolish the Torah. I didn't come to abolish the Torah, but to abolish it. And that's not what he said, eh? So, you know, the Jewish concept of fulfilling the law doesn't mean you do the whole thing and then it's gone forever. It simply means you uphold it, you teach it correctly, you model it to the world around you. That's the idea of fulfilling the law. So, for instance, whenever you do something that God said to do, you're fulfilling the law. And that's a good thing. All right, So we're going to be working from that basis. That the Torah still applies. That this chapter is still relevant to the people of God. To uh, family, relationships, etc. Yeshua went on in Matthew chapter 5 in the next verse to say... Okay, if you want to be great in the kingdom... And I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe just an exemplary. Maybe it means you'll have the nicest mansion on the block in the kingdom. Who knows? But he said if you want that... Then you need to take the commandments of the law seriously... Practice them. Influence other people to practice them too. And of course, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the idea. And then he said, if you want to be like ignominious in the kingdom, like if you want to be the little guy who mows the lawn of the guy with the really nice mansion in the kingdom, I don't know if that's really what it means, but I'm just thinking out loud here, then just ignore the laws in the Torah. And, you know, influence other people to ignore them too, and you'll be well on your way to being like the little guy and that's not something we want, right? Okay, so that's the, that's the basis that we're going to be working on here, that this stuff is still relevant, that Yeshua didn't do away with the law, and that God's word continues to, uh, to hold principles for us that are applicable. All right. Um, Tim, you know what, we're going to hold the comments actually until uh, maybe we look at the Torah portion and stuff, just because otherwise our live streaming guests can't hear, and then I can maybe do what we did last week. Yes, yeah, so write down your questions or comments and we'll have an awesome discussion after. Sorry. I like discussion too, but you know we, we love our live streaming uh, extended community, and we want them to be able to hear what's going on. Um, uh, 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 you, I think most of you know Tim in Saskatoon. He's on the leadership team of our, our congregation there, uh, Sar Shalom, and I really respect him. He's something of a mentor to me. I've learned a lot from him uh, over the years. And one thing, I think one of the... One of the um, One of the principles that I learned from him is something we're going to be employing this morning. Uh, Do you guys all know what like a hermeneutic is? I think probably. Your hermeneutic is how you interpret the Bible, right? So I'll give you a wild example. Let's say that you play Bible roulette. And you need a word from God, so you just open the Bible and... And you just point. You just point and uh, hope that God gives you the verse that you need, okay? I'm not going to get a show of hands to see who here has played Bible roulette. But let's say you do that. And then you say, okay, this verse, you just take it out of context and you say, this is what this verse means to me. That would be maybe an example of a really wild form of uh, hermeneutics, maybe called roulette hermeneutics or something. That would be a really, I'm giving you a... A humorous example. But uh, that would be an example of a hermeneutic. There, there are different types. Um, this one here, where I'm, I'm going to be sharing with you, is like the three Ps of uh, Torah hermeneutics, okay? The first one is practice. Everybody say practice. It's the physical level, how you apply the word to your life. Alright? Uh, in Hebrew, we'd probably call that halacha. Everybody say halakha. That's your walk. How you how you walk out the out the word. All right. That's a practice. Um, Underneath every one of God's commandments, that entails a practice is a principle. Everybody say principle. Sometimes there are several underlying principles. So that's the second P. You could say that is like the uh, the what of the word. The principle then would be the why of the word. And if you wanted to go to the third level, you would say, who gave this command? Who did he give it to? And what does that tell me about him and about me? And that would be the person. Everybody say person. Right? So every single mitzvah, all of the commandments in the Torah, they're practical on a practical level. They have underlying principles and they're kingdom principles that are eternal. And they're from him that tells us something about him. And it'll tell you something about yourself. Also. Alright, those are the three P's. So let's have some fun with this chapter and let's look at it on uh, each one of these, uh, these three levels. Um, firstly, let's look at the, uh, the different kind of subheaders of this chapter. In uh, chapter 30, verse 3, it talks about a girl if she's unmarried and she's still at home uh, living in her dad's house. And uh, it basically says, like, if, if the girl makes a vow, or uh, maybe says something like, blurt something out rashly, but that has, like, that is legally binding, her father actually has the authority to step in and cancel that if it'll have negative effects on her, or if it's something that she will later seriously regret. Uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a couple examples of maybe what this would look like. Let's say, you know, the dad's at home uh, in, in, in Jerusalem in ancient times having his cup of of coffee, because of course coffee is very biblical, and Jewish people have always drank coffee. And uh, so he's having his morning cup of coffee, and his uh, his daughter. Uh, he's like, "Oh, hon, where did uh, where did uh, where did our daughter go? What's what's the what's the daughter's name in this story? Uh, how about?" Uh, um, Hogla, Hogla means Davi in Hebrew, okay? so we say yeah, where's, where's Hogla this morning, and the mom says, oh she went to the temple to pray, He's like oh that's nice, you know, she's 12 years old and she's really, she's really beginning to have her own prayer life, it's great, so you know she comes in, he's like, hey hon, uh, how was your, your prayer time at the temple, Hogla, and she's like, it was great dad, I just feel so passionate for Yahweh right now, and uh, I took a vow, um, that um, until my 13th birthday, I'm going to fast from eating or drinking anything so I can just focus on him And the dad thinks, you know, Hogla's birthday isn't for two more months. And and so so let's just say, this is I know, this is a little extreme example, right? But I want to have fun with this. So he's like, you know, Hogla, your birthday isn't for about 60 days. And you know, you're in your adolescence, you're developing. I, I fear that if you don't eat anything for the next two months, you might die. In fact, you probably will die. And she'd be like, oh no, I didn't think of that. And, uh, and she'd be like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I took a vow. I have to do it. And that, okay, so that would, that would be an example where the dad can say, you know what, you know, in the Torah, it, uh, it says that I'm allowed to cancel that vow if it's going to be something that will be negative for you. So I'm going to release you from that. She'd be like, oh, thank you so much, Abba, right? Maybe that would be a wild example. Or maybe the girl, and maybe she's 15, maybe she liked a boy, and maybe the boy broke her heart. And she's like, I am never going to get married in my whole life. I hate boys. Maybe she'll say something like that, Right? and the dad and maybe it, you know words do have power don't they we can even make inner vows and they can affect your whole lives I won't be like my parents or I won't be like so and so and lo and behold you become just like that person or I will mar- never marry someone like my, you know, my, my, my mom or my dad and then you end up marrying someone just like that okay so vows have power this would be another example the girl says I'm, I hate boys I'm never going to get married and you know the dad um, could you know maybe right there or maybe just in private he could, he could just prayerfully annul those words Alright, just release his daughter from the power of those words. Maybe these would be some examples of this, uh, this mitzvah in action. Okay, um, let's, uh, let's, let's look at another example. Numbers 30 verses 6 to 8. Okay, let's say a girl took a vow when she was in her dad's house uh, as a youth, and her dad didn't cancel the vow, and then she gets married and her husband hears about the vow. What would be an example? Um, let's say that the girl, when she was a teenager, she just totally gorged on cookies. She ate way too many cookies, and she was just like, I hate cookies. And she took a vow that she would never bake cookies for her whole life. Okay? And her dad was like, well, you usually burn them anyway, so I'm fine with that. Um, okay. So so time goes on, she gets married, and uh, her, she learns that her husband really loves cookies. And she's like, oh no, when I was 14, I took a vow that I would never bake cookies. And uh, the dad, the husband, sorry, he can, because she's in her, her husband's house, and that's the first day he heard about it, he can be like, oh hon, you know, I love cookies. Like, cookies are my love language, right? I need you to bake cookies for me. That's when I feel loved. And she'll be like, oh, I regret making that vow. Uh, according to this chapter, he'd be able to be like, you know what, I'm going to, I release you from that vow. So you are you are allowed to bake cookies for me. All right? That that would be an example of um of um, when a girl making a vow in her youth, and then later when she gets married. Um, let's uh, let's look at another example. Uh, Numbers chapter thirty verses ten to fifteen talks about a wife in her husband's house. Uh, what would be an example? Let's say that she was down at the temple too, and she was praying, and she comes back, and her husband's like, "Hey, hon, how was your how was your time at the temple?" And she's like, oh, "So great. You know, I really felt convicted. I wanna I want to spend more time just focusing on my spiritual life. So I've uh, I took a vow that for the next two years we're gonna sleep in separate bed, bedrooms because. I find you a distraction to my spiritual life know, and uh, if the husband was like uh, reading the morning paper and he wasn't really listening, he could be like, oh, that's nice, hon. Alright, um, good, good. And that would be a really dangerous for him, right? But um, in, a, in a situation like that, let's say the husband and his wife are, uh, let's say they're part of the sect of the Nazarenes in uh, the Second Temple Era. So he'd be like, you know, hon, the Apostle Paul had some stuff to say about that. Let's go, let's go look at 1 Corinthians 7 together. So then he could take his, his very, very spiritual wife to 1 Corinthians 7 and they could read the passage where it says, you know, if you're going to abstain, for meta relations, then it has to be by mutual agreement and for a time, right? He could be like, you know, hon, I don't know if we really went with the mutual agreement part on this. This was kind of a unilateral decision on your part, and uh, and she would be like, oh no, I have, uh, you know, I I didn't know about that chapter. I never read First Corinthians seven yet, and he uh, could be like, well, you know what. Even though that was a vow and that should be binding as your husband i i according to the torah i can I can release you from that vow all right and uh, and so they're, they're uh, they don't have to be miserable for the next two years so those those would be some uh, some examples of uh okay some rather creative examples of uh, of this uh, this principle in action all right um, let's let's look at kind of the principles of this now, and uh we'll uh I just want to, I want to point something out from last week. Last week, we, we looked at the end of, uh, which letter was it? Titus. We looked at Titus. And uh, Paul had some great ex- instructions for the ladies in a congregation that are mentoring younger ladies. He had seven specific areas where they can grow, where they can focus on, be, on, on uh, having as their strength zones. And one of those was about like being subject to their husbands. So we looked at the term subject. We broke it down in Greek. And we looked at quite a few instances of that term as it's used throughout the New Testament. You remember that. Now, and then, we ended, and then we ended the message, basically. And something I didn't do there was I didn't qualify Paul's words, okay? There is a time to do that. Like, for instance, we, we just looked at, like, the lady's responsibilities in that, in, that, in that passage. But what we didn't look at was, like, what happens if the guy is a slacker and he's not doing his part. It's disastrous, right? So I didn't kind of go into those details. So, you know, if at times I look at something and it sounds like it's only half the picture, that's because it is. Because you know, chapters like this, for instance, are only half the picture. Where Paul talks about wives being subject to their husbands, that's only half the picture. The other half is Paul hits it hard with the men. Uh, the other half is throughout the Torah, God hits it hard with the men, right? So anyway, I just I want to point that out as we, we look at this. Um, I'm just going to give you give you some stuff from this. It might not be the whole the whole meal deal, uh, theologically speaking. Okay, here, here are a couple of principles that I can derive from this. Uh, a father has a certain degree of spiritual authority in the life of his daughter. And I wonder if that doesn't apply just in terms of counseling vows. Maybe I as an Abba have spiritual authority in the life of my daughter to bless her, uh, etc. Alright? Um, I think you could also correlatively say that the husband has a role in his wife's life that in, in some specific areas is different than the role that his wife plays in his. It, this seems to be something in this chapter anyway. In this chapter, even a husband has a certain veto power in his wife's spiritual life, life that his wife doesn't seem to have in his. Um, we'll look, at a sec- look in a second about maybe why that is or how that actually looks on a practical level. Um, you know, the, Some people will, will say when they read this chapter that you know, basically when Yeshua came, he changed everything with his death and uh, His resurrection uh, and the ushering in of the new covenant, that changed everything so the law doesn't really apply. Uh, He abolished this whole family model, let's say. Um, I I, I would hesitate with that simply because Yeshua said that wasn't what He came for. All right. Um, Here's another objection. People might read chapters like this, or maybe maybe start to think, "What is the underlying principle here?" And uh, they might they might point out, for instance, that this was just a temporary order. Some people would say that was instituted after the fall. You remember in uh, Genesis chapter three, uh, God is you know instituting an order that will kind of perpetuate after the fall, and would it include stuff like man's going to have to work really hard? he is going to have to deal with weeds in his garden and in his crops. Uh, women will have, will have pain in childbirth. Uh, the snake's going to go on his belly. And another thing he said to Eve is your, your husband's going to rule over you. So some people would say, you know, that was only temporary until Yeshua came and all, that that is cancelled now. So Numbers chapter 30 doesn't apply anymore. And uh, I, I would have a hesitation with that simply because I don't see that yet. I, I wonder because, you know, for instance... Uh, if you're a farmer, you still have to buy herbicide and deal with the weeds. If you're a gardener, you still have that problem. Uh, men still work hard to provide for their families, to eke out in many, in many cultures in existence. Uh, as far, when Genevieve... Uh, Genevieve had her baby, for, for as far as I could see in here. Uh, there was still some pain going on there. You know? So I would hesitate to simply say that order is cancelled and abolished with Yeshua's second coming. Will it be phased out in the future? Will, that, will those things be, uh, let's say, will we move on to a new era uh, when Yeshua returns? Sorry, with Yeshua's uh, first coming, in meant to earlier. Uh, when Yeshua returns, when He ushers in the Messianic era, when we enter into the olam haba, the world to come, could it be that that will be a time when there are no more weeds in the garden, flowers just grow beautifully? Uh, could it be a t- that would be a time when men don't have to sweat it out every day to eke out an existence for their family? Could it be a time when even the marital relationship will be changed and the, 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 the family structure as prescribed in the Torah? Yeah, I think there's a really good chance, but I don't think that's happened yet. So um, th- th- those are my thoughts on, on, on that matter. Uh, there's one more principle that I think I, I, I kind of get out of this passage and that could be that it could be suggesting that women communicate in a way that's differently than men. That sometimes women express their spirituality in a way that is different than men. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's acceptable. It might even infer that sometimes women say things in the heat of the moment maybe when they're in highly emotional states that they later regret. Could it be that guys do that too? Oh Yeah. Not just, ju- not just the gals, eh? But, I mean, that is kind of the basis of this passage. There might be times when your daughter or your wife will make a vow or say something that she wishes she could take back later. Alright? Those are a couple of principles. Um, let's look at what the lessons in this chapter are for us men. So if you're a guy, I need you to track with me here. Uh, If you are a dad or a grandpa, if you have daughters or granddaughters, uh, if you're married and you have a wife, this is great for you to... Let's look at this on that level. And as we go through this, if you're not a dad or a grandpa or a husband or whatever, remember that Yeshua is our husband. Yeshua is... In some ways, like our, our Father. Indeed, you know, we know who our Heavenly Father is. So, you know, as we as we look at this and how it applies to man, we can also know that this is a this is like a miniature of how Yeshua relates to us. So let, let's look at that together too. And again, as a young husband and father, like, I'm all over stuff like this. This is the stuff that I'm learning personally. And that's why you hear me talking about it a lot. The other reason you hear me talking about it as a lot is because sometimes in Torah communities, people are all about, like you know, the minutia of kosher or uh, how to do certain halakha things or abstract theology and families fall apart and men are jerks and they don't treat their wives and their children well and I don't want that to happen in my sphere of influence whether it be our community or in the broader movement so that's why you'll often hear me hitting, hitting stuff that relates to, uh, to us men. Okay, here's, here's the first practical thing. Let's count these on our fingers um, that I get from this. Like, okay, so this is, um, this is something I, as a husband, am learning. I need to listen to my wife. Like, uh, I gave you that example, right? Let's say the lady comes in from the temple after praying, and she makes this vow. And if the hubby's just sitting there reading the paper, and, like, he's not really listening, it could be disastrous, right? So, uh, I, as a husband to listen to my wife and here's the challenge for me giving my wife my full attention because I'm a very one track thinker so like if I'm working for instance let's say I'm working through a crisis or I'm doing some creative web design I am so in my zone and I'm so locked in like the house could burn down around me and I don't know if I would even notice Like, that's how bad it is for me, eh? And um, so sometimes, let's say Genevieve has a question for me, or let's say that lunch is ready, and she calls me to tell me lunch is ready. I'll kind of give my automated response. I don't know if you have email. Maybe you've seen some people have automated responses. I have one of those built into my brain. So I'll be like, okay, Genevieve. Or she'll ask me a question. I'll be like, okay, yep, for sure. And I won't have a clue what she said. And I do it without thinking, and it's so bad. It's really bad so yeah you know, so anyway this would be an example for me it's not just about like listening to my wife it's about really listening to her like giving her my full attention so for me if she has a question for me I have to be like Genevieve I'm working on this website right now and I'm in my like creative room in my brain so I, I literally have to get up I have to leave my desk and I have to go sit down in the living room and be like okay now I can focus on you now you can ask me the question right and then I can give her my full attention and uh, you know what? Maybe we don't all work like that, but that's how I work. That's something I've learned on a practical level. So, guys, for some of us, we need to like, we need to like, just put the newspaper down or put the book down, close it up, or like turn off the. I don't know. If you're in your 20s, like turn off the Wii. Any of you guys have Wiis? You know, the video game, kind of like Xbox. Okay, some of us guys, we have to turn off the Wii. That might be really hard to do or like pause the football game I don't know uh, stuff like that um, anyway our, our wives deserve that um, this is very true of daughters and granddaughters also eh? not just wives um, here, here's, a, here's thing number two that I, I'm learning from this passage have spiritual conversations with my wife Uh, Some days I don't feel very spiritual. I don't really feel like talking about spiritual stuff at all. I'm, like, really into, let's say, the crisis I'm having with my web server or the minutia of HTML code if I'm doing website stuff or or you name it. I mean, some of us are probably into, like, vehicle repair or whatever, eh? And it's like, that's what really gets you rev. Like, that's what you want to talk about because that's what's on your mind. And uh, those are the times, I think, when it's cool to remember, like, Having spiritual conversations with one's wife is a very, it's a Torah idea, and it's a really good one. Um, here, here's like an action point that I've been learning. Sometimes you don't have to do all the talking. Sometimes you can just be the listener. So ask a question or two, and just listen. Because sometimes that's what our wives need, I think. Um, so here, here are some questions that I've been, I've been learning that are just really great. That are really great for like... Um, I don't know, like facilitating a spiritual conversation. I'll give you five of them. You can write these down if you want. Um, How's your relationship with God been lately? Okay? You don't have to feel spiritual to ask that question. But you can love your wife by asking that and just listening. That's number one. Uh, Number two, how have you been doing spiritually? You know, it's kind of a heart question, right? How's your heart been? Stuff like that. Um, Number three, what's Yahweh been saying to you lately? Um, you know, God said that in the new covenant we all be hearing. Oh, you would all be hearing from Him, right? So God is saying stuff to your wife, and you know what? That's a very special zone of her heart. And when you ask, "What's God been saying to you lately?" you're coming into that special zone, and that's going to build relationship. And you know what? The cool thing is, these are questions that Yeshua asks every one of us as, as the great husband. So, you know, as I go through these, let's remember, like, the different levels that this applies on. Uh, number four, what have you been reading in the Bible lately that's really spoken to you or been meaningful to you? Um, don't ask your wife that if she doesn't read the Bible or she'll feel like you're trying to put a guilt trip on her, okay? So if she doesn't read the Bible, don't ask her what she's been reading in the Bible lately that's meaningful to her. <laughs> and, uh, uh, number five, uh, how can I be praying for you? Yeah? I mean, again, you know, that it, that it assumes that you pray for your wife. That assumes that you have a prayer life. And if you don't, repent. Start praying for your wife. And start caring. And asking how you can pray for her. Seriously. And that's something that I'm still working on. Like, I can go for a week or two. I don't ask my wife that. But that's an area where I want to grow, eh? So anyway, those are five questions that, that I, I you know, that I, I've been learning about that are really useful. And, okay. Um, so, let's say you ask one of those questions. And uh, let's say there's like, the a spiritual conversation happening and let's say that your wife in the process of sharing is like just really having a spiritual crisis or freaking out or she's really mad and it's just not like pretty or nice or whatever okay um response at that time i've learned is what the torah says just listen right it's like as a male i have such a i have such a tendency like to be like oh well, this is how we could fix that. Or this is how I could solve your problem. Or what are we going to do about that? Or, or even worse, like, I can criticize. I'll be like, you know, you shouldn't be thinking that. That's not very, very Christ like at all. Oh my. You know, just, just really don't do that, right? Um, just like care and, and, and listen. So that's the second thing that I've been learning as a husband. Uh, thirdly, uh, as husbands, we can let our presence be a safe place for our wives and our daughters or granddaughters to share their inner thoughts and feelings. Uh, You know, I I don't know about you, but maybe you found that there's some people that you don't feel safe around. Like you don't feel like you can open up around certain people because maybe they will gossip about you or they will will tell your inner secrets to people who don't need to hear it. Kind of like kind of tossing the pearls all over the place, you know? They won't guard the pearls. Um, maybe, uh, maybe you know people where, like, you wouldn't share stuff because they're critical people, and you know that they'll judge you inside. They're, like, not accepting or whatever. Um, I don't know. I think we've probably all come across people like that. I've been that person. I probably am that person sometimes. Um, but uh, something I've been learning is, like, just to accept the people in my life and first and foremost, my wife. So you know what? When she's sharing with me, just to accept her, the way Messiah accepted me, which is fully, which is 100%, which is unconditional. I think maybe that's the key to listening. And that's a, maybe that's like, I'm, I'm trying to get into the heart of Numbers 30, right? I'm trying to get into what the underlying principles of this are. So th- this is something I get out of that. You know, not pointing out faults, criticizing, um, telling her how, you know, she shouldn't be a certain way or shouldn't feel certain things. Just loving, listening, and uh, and accepting. Um, Okay, here's fourthly and uh, finally one more practical thing here in uh, Numbers chapter thirty, verse six. Oh, sorry, um, verse five. Verse five. If you have a a Christian Bible, it says um, this is about like a girl in her dad's house. So let's say it says uh, if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or obligations by which she's bound herself shall stand, and Yahweh will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. Right? The Hebrew word there for forgiveness, is salach. Everybody say salach. salach. Um, you remember the Hebrew word for an apostle? It's a shaliach. Excuse me. It's from the verb uh, shalach, which means to send something. All right. So a shaliach is someone who's sent. Uh, this is a cognate word, so it's very closely related conceptually. Uh, salach. Salach means to throw something, to let it go. Is it possible to throw something and still hold on to it? They're, they're diametrically opposed actions, aren't they? So um, this verb here is like, when, when the dad annuls this or whatever, it says Yahweh will forgive her. When we think of forgive, we think of like, well you offended me, but I forgive you. You know, you said you're sorry and I say it's okay or whatever. But the, the word there means to release. I would probably translate that word as release, okay? So it's saying like, Yahweh will release her. And that's a very powerful picture of forgiveness in general too. The Hebrew concept of forgiveness is to release, to let go, to literally throw it from yourself. That's, that's the idea there. And... Uh, What what, what can we learn from this chapter on a practical level? Um, If God is willing to forgive the daughter or forgive the wife of things that maybe she said in the heat of the moment, and we're created in His image, maybe that means we get to reflect His attitude and forgive people when they say stuff to us in the heat of the moment. Maybe things that they would later regret. I think of Yeshua even, you know, when when he was being crucified. And these these soldiers were doing it. And I mean, they were doing it intentionally. They knew full well that they were nailing a living human being to a stake to die there. And uh, he said, Abba, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. So you know, even when we think people know what they're saying, if they're like lashing out, if they're acting in a hurtful manner, if someone's being a jerk, he really doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. She doesn't know what she's doing. So that's something else that we can learn uh, from this parasha. Alright, so that's on, the that's on the principle level. Let's look down at the third level now, on the person level. Let's see um, what this has to teach us about the one who gave this chapter in the Torah. Here, here's, here's what we learned from it God is a loving father who is engaged in our lives. God's a caring father who listens and who gives us his full attention. He is sincerely interested in your heart, in your dreams in your aspirations, in how you're doing spiritually. So every one of those five questions that I just shared with you, that are great questions for a husband to ask his wife if he wants to have a conversation on a spiritual level with her, or a real level, um, those are questions that the Father cares about for you. Those are questions that He's asking you. Seriously. Um, what can, we, we also learn from this that God is a Father who has the authority to release us from the effects of things that we've said and done. He actually has the authority to forgive our sins. Uh, what does this teach us about Yeshua? As, uh, as the, the man to whom we collectively are betrothed, our, our coming husband, uh, to whom we'll be married at the great wedding, uh, wedding ceremony, the greatest Jewish wedding of all time uh, that is coming, um, we learn that he is a loving husband who is engaged in our lives. Uh, He's a caring husband who listens and gives us his full attention. Yeshua is sincerely interested in our hearts, our dreams, our aspirations, how we're doing. Um, Yeshua is also a husband who has the authority to release us from the effects of things that we've said or things that we've done. He actually has the authority to forgive sins. Doesn't that bring up certain passages in the Gospels in your mind? I feel like Numbers 30 gives us a context for Yeshua, the husband of Israel, the husband of the Messianic community, forgiving us of our sins, releasing us from things we've said in the past, uh, from, from stupid things that we've done in the past, from, from people that maybe we've hurt in the past. So that, that's the gospel from Numbers chapter 30. Yeshua is there. He loves you. He is engaged in your life. And He, is, he forgives you for those things that you have repented of. Um, I'll give you one insight from chapter 31 and one insight from chapter 32 and then we'll look at Hebrews. Uh, chapter 31, verse 8. Uh, this is a chapter where Midian aggressively attacked Israel. Uh, they actually posed an existential threat to Israel and in response, uh, the Creator says, retaliate against Midian and uh, take them out. And they, and they take them out. It's... Uh, it's yeah anyway um this is something interesting in verse 8 it says that Balaam was killed along with the rest of the Midianites. You remember Balaam uh the the prophet from Mesopotamia. He's the guy who went up on the hill and he looked out over Israel and he like he was hired by Balak, the king of Mo- of uh, of uh, of Midian with like a whack of cash. Like I don't know, how, however many, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars he would have transferred to uh, Balaam's bank account to, to curse Israel. And so Balaam goes up there and he ends up blessing Israel. You know the story. He actually does it three times he blesses Israel. Alright? And here's Balaam. Uh, apparently after that he, got, he, he started mixing it in with, Mo, with Midian and he gave the king of Midian this advice to send out the ladies and seduce Israel. And he, So he gets killed. This is the end of Balaam's story. Uh, rather tragic, I think. It's a sad ending. I don't think it had to be that way. I mean, if I was Balaam, I don't know why, why I would have seen Israel and prophesied glorious things of Israel and been like, those are the people of the Creator, and then like went and turned against them. You, you'd think, you know, logically speaking, Balaam would have been like, you know, I think I should go and uh, kind of ally myself with, with those guys and kind of go over to the camp of Israel. It's not what he did. Anyway, uh, Well, I I learned a couple of things from this on a practical level. It is possible to bless Israel verbally, to, on a surface level, be all about loving Israel and supporting Israel and giving money to ministries that support Israel, and still actually not love Israel, and not really bless Israel, and not really be allied with the purposes of God for His covenant people. That's a warning. For, for anybody who would identify themselves as a Christian Zionist or someone who loves Israel and, and prays for the peace of Jerusalem, it's not just a surface thing. It's something that will in, re, involve your whole life. It will, it will revi- require serious commitment. It may actually even involve a restructuring of your religious alliances or your uh, social affiliations to a certain degree. You cannot just stand at a distance and bless Israel and say that you support Israel and then go down and mix it up with Midian, who is sending people out to try and assimilate Israel and get them to forsake the Torah. And I believe that's a word for the body of Christ. Because often, you know what, people have good hearts and God bless them for it, and they love Israel and they pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and they even give money to organizations that are helping Israel. But at the same time, they have this underlying agenda to gentilize Jews, to try and get them to believe in Jesus and then strip them of their Jewishness and seduce them away from the Torah and just get them plugged into some assimilation program. And it happens a lot. And I fear, I fear that sometimes that may be the error of Balaam. That might be the error of a prophet who blesses Israel externally, but on a deeper level, doesn't really, maybe doesn't get it sometimes. And, you know, I'm, I'm, so that's, a, that's just something to, to be aware of. I'm going to give you an example. I'm not going to give any names or anything here, but uh, I I, I know of a congregation, a Messianic Jewish congregation, and they approached the pastor of a church that was very pro-Israel. Like, this church even had an Israeli flag in their sanctuary, and, uh, and they were hoping that they could develop a friendship with this church. It was a pretty progressive church in terms of loving Israel. And uh, especially like in their denomination, which wasn't a very pro-Israel denomination. And, uh, and uh, anyway, this, this pastor, you know, he just said, you know, you guys are a little too serious about the law. I'm not sure about this, you know. I have a check in my spirit because you do the Torah. And... Uh, that was the end of that, that relationship. That relationship did not go forward. So, you know, externally, that church was blessing Israel. They had an Israeli flag in their sanctuary. But, you know what, on a heart level, they, hate, they, they, they did not believe that Jews should continue to live as Jews. They did not believe that God's Torah, as what defines Israel, was still relevant or applicable. And, uh, you know what, so they had good hearts, and God blessed them for that. But, you know, on a deeper level, it just, it wasn't there. So, you know, that would be an example. And uh, none of you guys know this church or pastor as far as I know, so don't try, start trying to figure out maybe maybe who it is or whatever, okay? I'm just using that as, a, as an example. Um, in Numbers chapter 32, we'll look at something there too. Uh, this is one of, one of the verses I remember my dad quoting to me when I was young. Be sure of your sin will find you out. How many of you have heard that verse? I don't. I don't know if I even knew it was in the Bible. Like it really sounds biblical, but it's one of the, one of those things, like those "God helps those who help themselves" verses that you're just not sure. Or the verse I just quoted about you know Jewish people always drinking coffee, uh, the biblicality of that or whatever. I mean, you know, stuff like that. But it's actually in the Bible, in in this chapter, in uh, thirty two verse twenty three. You know, there, there's the context for it anyway. These tribes and. Uh, They want to... I'll just give you a quick overview of the story. So, uh, two and a half of the tribes, are on the east side of the Jordan. They haven't entered into the heartland of Canaan yet. And they're like, you know, Moses, um, this land is really good for livestock. And, uh, kind of interesting, we we have a lot of livestock. (laughs) It's kind of, you know hmm, maybe we could have something happen here. So anyway, Moses gets really upset. He's like, you guys don't want to go across the Jordan and you're just like your parents and, and uh, you, uh, you're just, you're chickening out, basically. And they're like, Moses, Moses, no. Uh, listen, we will go ahead of everybody else into Canaan. We'll help them clear out the land, get them settled. And only then will we come back and we'll inherit this part of the Jordan, all right? And Moses says, okay, but listen, if you renege on this agreement, your sin's going to find you out, guys. All right, so that's the context. That's the that's the story here, and um, I, I think there's a lesson here for us um, on on an individual level and also on a broader level. But let's just let's just look at the individual level first. Um, it's interesting that these guys on the east side of the Jordan they didn't settle down and just get comfortable until their their compatriots had also come into their inheritance until their their brethren were able to settle down and get comfortable too, so they weren't just going to kind of what would be an example? an, an example would be uh, remember Bathsheba's husband, who was a Hittite, and he was like a great warrior and uh, David like tried to get him to uh, i don't know kind of relax and get comfortable when his fellow soldiers were on the front lines and, and you know just sleeping in, in, in uh, uh, military tents or whatever, and he's like, "I'm not going to do that. All my brethren, all my fellow soldiers are on the front lines, and so he wouldn't go down to his house and get comfy with his wife or, or whatever. He would just he just slept on the doorpost of David's house. That that would be that would be an example of that that, that I find really really inspiring. Um, so here here's something here here's maybe what I can what, what I get out of this for. Let's say for me as an individual, like if I uh, okay I, I can think of a time in my life when I was really searching. Like in my teens, I was like, I need, to, I need to find God for myself and know who He is as my God and not just as my parents' God or whatever. I really need to know who I am. I need to know what my mission in life is going to be because I need a mission or I just want to die. I'm the kind of person where if I don't have a mission, I would rather just be dead than just float around and live hedonistically for my own pleasures or just chill with my buddies who also don't have a clue where they're going in life and stuff like that, right? That, that's, that's kind of like a glimpse into my, my teen years. And so I, I, I was on a real quest, and it's a quest that I continue to be on to some degree, where I was really like, who am I? And like, what's my mission in life? And, uh, and uh, you know, like in my early 20s, I felt like I really began to get some answers. Things began to come together for me. Uh, I really began to like find... Does, like know God and know Yeshua for myself in a greater way and in the process of finding him and who he was, I also found myself and who I was eh? so you know, I, I feel a little more secure in those elements of my life now but uh, I'll give you an example like, looking at those tribes they could be like, okay, you know, I kinda, we kind of know who we are and we know what we're doing and we can get comfortable now and kind of live the good life and settle down and watch a little more TV right? um, the, I, I, could, I, could, I could adopt that mindset now But that wouldn't be the modus operandi of those tribes. They said, you know what, there are still ten tribes who who haven't come into who they are, who haven't come into their mission yet. And so we're not going to settle down, we're going to stay active and we're going to help these guys. So what would, look, what would that look like for us as individuals? Here, here's what I get out of that. If you already are pretty secure in who you are, and you know where you're going in life, and you know, you're know you pretty stable, maybe you're set up financially, and all of these kinds of things, don't just get too comfortable and live for yourself. That's a time to become a mentor. That's a time to reach out to people who, you know what, maybe are a little scary on the outside. Maybe they're really searching. Maybe they don't know who they are. Maybe, maybe there are young guys and gals who just don't have a mission and they're just floating. There are lots of people like that. That's a time to begin to reach out to people like that and build friendships with them, and maybe help them find their strengths or discover what like what their what who the, what their mission is. Help them get in their zones. eh? that's something that I get out of this out of this passage. And you know, it's it's too easy, I, especially for communities that have been around for a while, to just become like more or less social clubs where we do our thing, we get together every week, and we really do have a good time but it's kind of about us and it's not about reaching out or establishing friendships with people that are a little scary and maybe mentoring those people or helping them on their journey. And, and I pray that we will always be people that have an outreach mindset. And you know what? That doesn't start with us as a group. That starts with me as an individual and you as an individual, right? So, you know, we as a group don't do outreach. You do outreach. I do outreach. And when we're all doing that and we're building relationships with people that maybe need a friend, or need something of a mentor. Is this thing, this thing's going to go, and uh, and uh, we are going to uh, maybe be really plugging into uh, these tribe, these Eastern tribes uh, mindset. Okay, let's look at this on a slightly broader level. Um, I think for some of us, the concept of tribe is uh, it's kind of a clunky old word. Maybe it's a little weird. Like, maybe you think of Mormons or something when you think of tribes. Or, uh, I don't know. It's like... Or maybe you think of, like, dudes in loincloths running around the jungle when you think of tribes or something. Uh, A book that's kind of an interesting book to read that kind of redefines the term tribes in more of like a a modern uh, mindset is um, it's a book called Tribes by Seth Godin. I don't know if any of you read it. It was quite a hot seller in 2008. But in that book, he talks about tribes in the sense of a group of people who, uh, who have a common interest, who have a common lingo, who uh, maybe who have the same cause that they're fighting for. And in that regard, every one of us are probably part of, a part of several tribes. I, I like to actually think of us in those terms. I like to think of myself as being a tribal person, and I'm a part of quite a few tribes. Um, what would be some examples of that? Um, you know, what some some of the some of the bands uh, throughout time, some of them who had like kids who just followed the bands from place to place on the road. Those were like tribes, all right. Um, what would be an example? Of, like the Grateful Dead. You know, the deadheads who just followed the Grateful Dead all around? Those guys were a tribe. Like, they had a common lingo. They were passionate about that band. And that was, like, kind of what they lived for. That was their identity. That's a tribe. All right? Um, I actually, I really like to look at the the broader Yeshua movement, the Christian community, in that, in, in that context, in the context of tribes. All right? So, like... Uh, um, we, we come from quite a few different tribal backgrounds in that regard. You can, you can look at the Christian community as like denominational superstructures or organizations. You know what? Sometimes that is, that's what it is. But on a more personal level, it's often more tribal. You know? There are people who are more in the charismatic tribe. There are people who are in the, the high church tribe. There, there are people in, in different tribes. And uh, you know what? We're all related to each other through the covenant, I, I hope. Um, and so, how does that look like on a broader level, for us as a community, to think of ourselves as a tribe, as part of a tribe. You know, the Hebrew Roots Movement or Messianic Judaism, we're a tribe. We really are a tribe. But there's more to the body of Messiah than us. No duh, right? So how do we look at those other tribes out there? Do we kind of be like, you know what, we got the Torah and we're just going to settle down now and get comfy and just do the Torah. And, you know, we don't really have to engage with the broader body of Christ. They, They do stuff that we don't agree with. You know, they do stuff that's pagan or whatever. You know, there are lots of, there are lots of reasons to disengage. And, uh, but you know what, I, I, my feeling is when we do that, we don't get the message of this chapter. The message of this chapter is you're part of a nation that's broader than your tribe and be passionate for those other tribes. Care about where they're going and, you know, engage with them. Get on the front lines with them. Maybe even be something of an influencer, or leader with that tribe as you engage with them. So you know what? There are, lots of, there are lots of streams in the body of Christ that maybe don't understand the Jewishness of Jesus or don't understand the place that Israel plays in the covenant the covenant theology of God or, or you name it, right? And um, when we engage with the broader body of Christ, we're like those two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan saying, you know what? We're not just going to settle down and get comfy because we found our niche. We're going to go with you and we're going to we're going we're gonna to be leaders. We're going to get on the front lines and we're going to go ahead of you and we're going to help you come into what God has for you and the restoration that Yeshua has for you. That's for the whole body. That's, uh, that's what I get out of that on a practical level. Let's look at Hebrews for a couple minutes here. Man, I, I feel a little bit sad because we are going to be gone for the next three weeks. Like We're going to be at family week next Shabbat. And then I'm going to be at two Messianic Jewish conferences in the States, one in Pennsylvania and uh, one in Texas for the two Shabbats after that, uh, representing Holy Language Institute and also connecting with some, some congregational leaders and, and uh, getting some ideas. So, anyway, I'm kind of I'm a little bit bummed because I love Hebrews. I'm going to miss almost the whole book of Hebrews with you guys. So anyway, I hope you have a great time with the rest of it for the three Shabbats after this. Um, if you want some great commentary on the book of Hebrews, uh, Daniel Lancaster, uh, who's with First Fruits of Zion and teaches at Beth Emmanuel, which is like a congregation just across the river from Minneapolis-St. Paul in Hudson, Wisconsin. He, uh, he did a great series on the book of Hebrews last year and all of his sermons on the book of Hebrews are available for free on, on their website it's BethEmmanuel.org so you know if you want to dig into Hebrews check out, check out Daniel's, uh, Daniel's talks um, I, I, uh, I really learned a lot from them and he really brings in a lot of the traditional Jewish sources that have parallels in the book of Hebrews some of the Jewish context from that time uh, maybe what the people that that letter was addressed to were going through and uh, so, I, you know, check, check out Daniel Lancaster's talks. Um, I, I, I think you'll get a lot out of them. I, I really love Hebrews because it's, uh, it, it really communicates uh, what you generally call like a high Christology, or I guess we'd call like a Mashiach, um, it, it just It's about Yeshua, and it portrays Him not just as like the Ben-Adam, like the human being, but as like the glorified Son of God. And uh, it really gives us a good picture of what Yeshua is up to now and uh, what he looks like now. So I, I really appreciate that. I love the book of Hebrews and uh, I think it gives us some understanding too about the interplay of the different covenants of God. And uh, let's just uh, look at a couple things about Yeshua in, uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews. What are the things that I really want to hit here? Well, okay, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that you know in, in, in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible God communicated to his people in, 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 through various uh, various uh, media in different mediums right and, uh, and it included things like dreams riddles like omen type of signs uh direct prophetic messages and uh, often if you wanted to hear from Yahweh you would go to the seer or you'd go to the prophet for instance Saul lost his donkeys and he wanted to know where his donkeys were so he goes to the seer Samuel and, and Samuel tells him where his donkeys are it's kind of an interesting example of that anyway the author says that that now in the Aharit Hayamim which means the end of days God has spoken to us ultimately through his son Yeshua uh, this, this says two things very powerfully. Firstly, we are in the Acherid Haimim, we're in the end of days. Uh, the Hebrew, another Hebrew term for that is the Yomim Mashiach. Everybody say Yomim Mashiach. Okay, Yomim are days. Yom is a day, right? And Mashiach, you know who He is. Alright, so Yomim Mashiach means the days of Messiah. In the Talmud, it says that the Yomim Mashiach, the days of Messiah, they were supposed to start about 2,000 years ago. But because of Israel's sins, the Mashiach never showed up. Maybe he did show up. Maybe because of some people's sins, some people didn't recognize him. Anyway, this is a very powerful theological-like concept. We are in the days of the Messiah already. We are in the Messianic era already. Has it been fully manifest on a physical level? Probably not. You know, we read in Hebrews 2, God subjected everything to Yeshua, but we don't see everything subjected to Him. What gives? Well, that's happening. It's the kind of the idea there. So anyway, uh, we're in the Yomi Mashiach, and God has spoken to us all, ultimately through His Son. Uh, I don't know about some of you, but sometimes, like, I'm like, "What is God saying to me right now?" I need some direction in my life, or I have this crisis situation. If you have those kinds of questions, what this verse says is, "Go to Yeshua," because Yeshua is like Yeshua is where it's at. He is the Word from the Father, and everything that you need to hear from the Father, you will hear as you engage with Yeshua and get to know Him personally. That's, that's uh, something we learned from this. In uh, verse 2, we learned that the cosmos, that's the Greek word, were created through Yeshua. The Hebrew word for through is bayad. It means in the hand of. It has the concept of through the agency of. So the cosmos were created through the agency of Yeshua. Uh, we also read that Yeshua is inheriting everything. So whether it be the land of Israel, whether it be Canada... as as a large geographical land region, Yeshua is going to inherit everything. Uh, This is kind of cool, actually. The Cree word for the Creator is uh, katapetz again. I have a Cree friend who taught me that. And it means the owner of everything. So Yeshua is the owner of everything. He is uh, in the process of inheriting the planet. You know, that's a powerful thing because I'm not sure if you noticed, but there are some very powerful spirits that are battling over Jerusalem. There are several religious ideologies and secular slash political ideologies that are fighting over the land of Israel. And as Messianic believers, we believe that Yeshua is the ultimate king, and that when he returns, he is going to inherit the planet. He is going to become the true and ultimate king of Jerusalem. If you've seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven the concept of the King of Jerusalem maybe has a fuller meaning to you and uh, Yeshua is going to ultimately own the land of Israel. That's the big picture. That's our assurance. In verse 3 we read that everything wasn't just created through Yeshua it's upheld by Yeshua. So like by His powerful word. So if Yeshua was to somehow withdraw His active and powerful word for even a second like the cosmos would collapse on a subatomic level. I don't know if that means there would be a massive nuclear implosion of everything in existence, but it just goes to say that Yeshua is really involved in all of creation. He's around. Um, in, here's, here's a question for you. Who do the angels in heaven worship? God. The angels in heaven worship God, right? It's all over the place, you know. They shout about kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy is Yahweh. In the book of Revelation, they're all they're all uh, shouting the praises of the one who sits on the throne. But it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, they're not just shouting the praises of the one sitting on the throne. They're also shouting the praises of the Lamb. Who is slain? And we see this concept here also. Let me ask you: If angels worshipped anyone but God, would it be idolatry? Would it give would it give the Creator ample grounds for throwing them out of heaven and uh, and condemning them for rebellion? I, I think so. I think if angels worshipped anyone but God, they would be in big trouble. But here's something interesting: In Hebrews chapter one, verse six, it says, "When He again brings the firstborn into the world, that is Yeshua, He says." Let all the angels of God worship Him. So Hebrews 1 verse 6 explicitly states, The angels in heaven worship Yeshua, the firstborn. So we have, to, we have to come to one of two conclusions. Angels worship guys other than God, or angels worship Yeshua as God. I would lean towards the second conclusion. Yeshua is worshipped in heaven by the angels as God. God. That's a, that's, a, that's a verse that you can, like, highlight in your scriptures. Um, in ta- Hebrews 1, verse 8, we also read of the Son. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Did you hear that? Psalm 45 is addressing God. And the author here says this is addressed to the Son. So, Psalm 45 explicitly addresses Yeshua as God. According to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, Hebrews a uh, there are a couple of challenges in here that I've really had to take to heart. I've been you know, in the process of reclaiming my Jewish heritage, uh, learning about Judaism, applying the Torah. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 has really hit me. He said, Guys, we have to, play, have to pay way closer attention to what we've heard. That is to say, the Gospel, the message of Messiah. Why? So that we don't drift away from it. You know what? It is possible to get so wrapped up in the Torah, so focused on the minutia of Halakha, so enthralled with Jewish identity and stuff like that, that we can actually drift away from the Gospel. I think there's a lot of drift. There's some drift often in Messianic communities. We forget that we're all about the Gospel. We forget that it's because of the Gospel that we do Torah. So that's something that's really hit me hard. Uh, It's something we can remember as a community. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. We learn what the book of Hebrews is all about, and we wouldn't probably clue into this. I wouldn't have unless the author explicitly says it. He says he didn't subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. It's like, oh, I didn't know you were talking about the world to come here. So remember that. The epistle to the Hebrews is about the world to come. It's about the olam haba. If we don't understand that, we may be in danger of uh, misinterpreting uh, some of the Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, In Hebrews 2 verse 10, it says that Yeshua was perfected, like brought to wholeness and, and maturity, through suffering. That's crazy, eh? Yeshua actually had a process through which He was perfected, and it was through suffering. So, as we remember, as it says in the Bible, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So if you hit suffering in your life, there might be a reason. It might be because the Master had to go through that also. In Hebrews 2.11, we learn that Yeshua is the one who sanctifies us. Yeshua is the one who sets us apart as a community to His God. It's kind of cool too, because in quite a few traditional Jewish prayers, God is addressed as the one who sanctifies Israel. There's definitely a very strong correlation there. In uh, Hebrews 2.9, we read that Yeshua experienced death for you and me, he, quote, tasted death. Do you know what that means? It means, like, when you die, you don't, act, you don't really die. Yeshua experienced death for you. So it's like maybe you temporarily leave your body and you go to be with the Master, whatever that looks like, but you don't actually die. Wow. Like the real you, you don't actually die. You know, as you stay true to the Master you are in the early stages of living forever. Through the gospel, we are actually immortal. I mean, there's been a massive quest for immortality throughout history, eh? You know, the quest to find the fountain of eternal youth in South America. I mean, man, like a lot of Spanish uh, conquistadors like died trying to find that thing. It's like, it's kind of too bad because if they actually read the New Testament, they wouldn't have had to... uh, Go tromping through the jungles and you know get bitten by so many mosquitoes. Um, In Hebrews two fourteen, we learn that Satan he had the power of death and he doesn't anymore. All right, Satan does not have the power of death anymore. Some people give him that power over themselves and that's their choice, but he doesn't have the power of death anymore. Uh, That's Yeshua. He has that power now. In uh, Hebrews two sixteen, we read that Yeshua gives help to the descendant of Abraham. This is a really cool concept. Uh, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to totally unpack this concept right now. But the the Greek word there for the descendant is sperma. It's where we get the English word sperm from, and it would be better translated as seed. It's the literal physical descendants of Abraham. So what the epistle to the Hebrews is saying is, is it's not saying God is finished with Israel. It's not saying God no longer helps the Jewish people or the physical descendants of Abraham. It's saying these are the people that He does help. He is on these people's side. He continues. Yeshua continues to render assistance to them. Does that sound anti-Semitic? Does that sound like replacement theology? Au contrary, It's the exact opposite. So, you know, um, I, I just want to give this, you know, each of us has a, has a, has a gun. That we use against anti-Semitic ideology, and just take that big fat slug and put that in your put that in your magazine. Okay, put Hebrews chapter two verse sixteen in your magazine. And if you encounter people who are really into replacement theology or who are just anti-Semites, maybe they don't even know it. Just take them gently, take them to Hebrews two sixteen, and let them see what they think of it. Maybe it'll start to change the way they think. Um, Hebrews chapter th- 3 verse 1 I love this uh, he addresses the, those early Messianic Jews as holy brothers I just think that's cool he didn't just call them brothers he called them holy brothers so you know we as a community like uh, you know as, as men in this congregation we like have a sacred brotherhood uh, the ladies in this congregation you are holy sisters like you have a sacred sisterhood that is something that I think as a, as a culture we are really not in touch with. But it's something that so many of us deep in our hearts we cry for that. We would do anything for that. Some guys uh, get into MMA like mixed martial arts fighting because they want to belong to a, a sacred brotherhood. There are many prisoners, let's say in the U.S. Uh, uh, penitentiaries, who become part of Islam because they, because they, they, they want to belong to a holy brotherhood. And you know what, you guys, we have that. That's something that we have to offer people who want to uh, sell out and become committed disciples of Yeshua. That really, that really got me revved. Um, okay, well, let's finish this teaching with, uh, with uh, this is like. Uh, this is a condition that, uh, that that he gives here in uh, Hebrews three six. He gives this condition, and he says, um, "We're Yeshua's house if." And then he gives uh, he gives a condition. He says, "If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end." You know, often people will just say, "Yeah, of course." You know, we're the house of God. We're God's people. But the author here says, "Guys, this is conditional." We have a part to play in this. And this is where there's something to hold on to. What is it that we have to hold on to? Um, Hold on to our confidence. And I looked up this word. It's actually a contraction of two Greek words. It's the words for all and speaking. So it could be like all, all speaking is literally what it would say in the Greek. And it has the concept of being very outspoken of talking all the time, of being exceptionally verbal, like in a really public and even aggressive way, being bold and free with your speech. This is the idea, all right, behind confidence. And he says, guys, we are becoming Mashiach's house, like, you know, he's comfortable in our midst, if this is something that we hold on to. Um, What's the other thing he says? The boast of our hope. You know, to boast, it means to talk something up. It means to, like, brag about something. Did you guys notice neither of these, n- of these dynamics are very popular in uh, Canadian culture or in uh, the Western, like, relativistic and politically correct world? Like, people who really believe something and are outspoken about it, people who have a hope and they believe it's the only hope for humanity and they brag, they brag about it and talk it up about it all the time, like, people like that get a really bad rap. Uh, you know, a lot of people will just automatically turn off people like that it's like eh, religious extremist and eh, maybe even hater uh, you know there are different labels that people like that get but you know what? Th- this is our calling it's not our calling to turn people off in our culture but it is a calling to engage with our culture it's a calling to be outspoken about our faith as we have the opportunities and uh, let me ask you what does that look like um I- i'm going to give you i'm going to give you an example here okay um most of the apostles were killed because they preached publicly and it bugged people and it made people mad and it touched on nerves and people were like, that's illegal. You can't preach like that. We live in a pantheistic society where we believe in a plurality of gods. You can't just say there's one way to God and they would kill them. Okay, that was, that was Greco-Roman society in many times. These guys were being outspoken. It's like this, this, this word basically, right? Um... Does that mean that we should try and do that? We should try and get ourselves killed in Western society? Not necessarily. But let me ask you, have there ever been times when you had the opportunity to engage with the culture or when you had the opportunity to be outspoken about who you are and what you're about and you backed down because you were afraid that something, maybe you weren't going to get physically killed but maybe your reputation was going to be damaged, maybe you would lose a business deal, maybe somehow you would experience some form of death. Or, okay, I'm going to give you another example. Um, I, I'm on Facebook because I, I believe that as the people of God we're called to engage with the world to be outspoken about who we are and to shine with Yeshua's light that's why I'm on Facebook and uh, people like it I, I have tons of people that add me on I think I'm at like 3,300 Facebook friends or something because they like that I do that eh? Um, but okay there are, and you know what I don't know maybe there are governments that are monitoring me Maybe the government's monitoring me because they have an agenda to find all the believers and kill us all in the future. Maybe the One World Order is out there and Facebook is just secretly their tool and so they're just monitoring me and getting all my info so as soon as they phase in the One World Government, they can kill me. You know what? Maybe. But my calling is to preach the gospel boldly and everywhere and if it ends in in my death, good, because that's what I'm called to. And if it's not time for me to go, I'm not going to go. I, I challenge you to consider that outlook. That is a very biblical outlook. And I'm not saying you should get on Facebook, right? I'm just using that as an example in my life. There are some people who, like, steer clear of engaging with our culture who explicitly aren't on Facebook because maybe the government will, or, is watching. You know what? Maybe the government is, but when Paul walked into Rome and started preaching Yeshua, I guarantee you the government was watching. I guarantee you that was a threat to his life. And I guarantee you that he didn't back down. He preached Yeshua... And you know what? Yeah, he almost did get killed quite a few times. He did get some serious whoppings. But Yeshua, that pleased Yeshua. And Paul didn't go until it was his time. So if that was the, if that was the attitude of the, of the early Yeshua movement, if they had an aggressive outlook like that, if that is what it takes to become the house of Yeshua, then so be it. I, I pray that we'll adopt that same attitude, that we'll be counterculture, that in that area we'll be bad Canadians, and that we will in the process be good citizens of the kingdom and good soldiers for Yeshua. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.